Yeah. Okay, I think we can get started. Um, thank you everyone for coming to the uh, seminar for week two. Um, this evening we're going to have a, uh, a political economy topic to befit us as an interdisciplinary center. We have two economists and two political scientists uh, and a battle to, to the death. Jim here is part of the room. And uh, the topic tonight will be remittances in Latin America, which lends itself to social, economic, political analysis, as well as um, international relations. So I think it's a very good topic to get us going in an interesting debate. Um, we have four speakers tonight, so I, I hope they'll forgive me if uh, we don't go into lengthy introductions, but we're, I think we need to move forward on the time. So let me just introduce, we have David Doyle from St. Hughes, Faisal Ahmed from Nuffield College, uh, Diego Sanchez will be our discussant, and our first speaker will be Isbo Ruiz, who is a lecturer in economics at Harris Manchester. Thank you. Thank you, Tim, and thank you to the Latin American Center for having me here. Uh, and I'll try to be as brief as possible with uh, presenting the main results of my research, uh, who are in remittances, financial crisis, and the macroeconomy. And basically, this presentation is going to draw into, into two uh, specific papers, one uh, about remittances and the financial crisis, in which basically we're looking at what were the US, what were the factors that impacted the decrease in remittances, uh, and then we're gonna look, uh, I'm going to talk about remittances and the business cycle. So what is the relationship between remittances and the business cycle in the home, in the, in the home country, so where the migrants come from. Uh, both studies were from Mexico, and uh, basically this came out of uh, the financial crisis when we started sort of looking at the pattern of remittances over time uh, to Latin America. Uh, there, there were a lot of there were a lot of fear that uh, remittances were going to decrease not only in Latin America but worldwide. Uh, but in general, the impact was mixed. Uh, for some regions, for example, there was no no decrease, uh, or there was just a mild slowdown, like in the case of Asia. But Latin America was one of the regions uh, that suffered the most. Uh, one report from the Hispanic Center, for example, found that among Hispanic remitters, 71% said they sent less money home in, 2000, in 2008. Uh, and this is a nationally, nationally representative, representative survey uh, in, in, in the U.S. Uh, and although within Latin America, uh, although Latin America was the region uh, most affected, uh, the pattern was not the same for all countries. Mexico was the most aff affected, with the exception of Venezuela, which had other factors that uh, I'm not going to discuss here and I don't discuss in the papers. Uh, but basically we wanted to look at Mexico and how was that this decrease in remittances related to the U.S. Um, economic variables. So this first study was really about how U.S. economic variables affected uh, or impacted this slowdown in remittances. Um, in here I have uh, a graph of remittances to Mexico. So this is basically uh, given in, um, in, in U.S. dollars, millions of U.S. dollars. Uh, and you can see that there's basically three stages of, uh, of the pattern of remittances to Mexico. You have first from the early uh, mid-1990s to 2000s, to, uh, to er uh, early 2000s, in which the pattern of remittances is relatively stable. Then you see a large increase in remittances between 2002 and 2006. And then even before the, 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 the crisis get, got to the peak, uh, you, you start seeing between 2006 and 2007 how remittances started leveling down and then eventually decreasing. 
Um, there's some people that suggest that these increasing remittances may have been inflated by the fact that they were better, uh, there, there was a better recording of remittances and uh, the central bank was being much better at recording the amount of remittances coming in. Uh, however, some studies uh, in the Federal Reserve Bank of El Paso have done a lot of exercises showing that although there's some inflation in there, uh, in the amount of remittances coming in, it's still a huge increase. The, cre the, the increase in remittances were, was pretty significant in the early 2000s. Uh, another question we had at the time was, was this decrease related only to the border regions, to the uh, northern states? And if uh, and I like this table because it tells you how how it wasn't the case. You you look at uh, this is the percentage change in the volume of remittances. Uh, if you look in 2007, there were some different uh, states reporting uh, a decrease in remittances. By 2006, about 2008, you see a large increase. By 2009, all reporting states had um, reported an increase in remittances. Uh, so, so the question that we had was basically, what, what is the impact? How was this impact of the U.S. economic crisis, uh, or what was the role played of the U.S. economic crisis on remittances to Mexico? So we decided to look at different macroeconomic variables. We look at the manufacturing sector earnings in the uh, service industry. We looked at, um, at the agricultural sector, conditions in the U.S. economy. We look at different measures of unemployment, unemployment of Hispanics, unemployment of, uh, 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 of people without high school degree, because a large portion of the Mexicans, uh, foreign-born Mexicans living in the U.S. lack a, a, a high school degree. And uh, we also look at the, the, the housing sector, and we look at some of the U.S. economic variables, like uh, just the standard macroeconomic ones. And although there was not one specific reason for uh, to be blamed for the decrease in remittances, the one that kept showing up as a very robust reason was the U.S. housing market. And this, this sort of made sense uh, because because there is a large proportion of Mexicans working in the construction sector, uh, and this had an impact on their budgets and, and the amount they could have sent home. Uh, for example, the, the U.S. Uh, the, the Pew Hispanic Center estimated that of the 2.9 million Hispanics employed in the U.S. construction sector, 2.2 million were foreign-born, representing about 90% of the industry's labor force. And, and given the data, we know that a large portion of that were of Mexican origin. So all in all, uh, and I'm not presenting all the statistical results here, uh, but all in all, the, the U.S. housing market kept showing up as a very important variable explaining the decrease of remittances to Mexico. This was one of the graphs that we had at the beginning of the paper, and I'd like to show it because it, it sort of it's it's very it's just descriptive, but it shows you how remittances in the housing sector tend to track each other pretty well. We have uh, the change in remittances and uh, U.S. housing starts and housing permits, which are the two most used housing uh, variables um, for the case of the U.S. and they to, they tend to track each other pretty well. And we see how the the U.S. variables uh, housing variables start picking up in the middle of 2009, and remittances start picking up with a lag. 
um, but it tells you about how uh, sort of the, 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 the link that they, they really have and that we were able to find in our statistical analysis. So after doing this, this led us to think, well, there's a lot of a, a lot of policy reports trying to, to 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 talk about remittances as sort of this developing uh, mantra, which can be used for the sake of development in the countries. So uh, trying to have remittances-led programs in order to create develop de development um, strategies. Uh, but one of the things that this uh, led us to think was, but what about the relationship between remittances and the and the business cycle in Mexico? Are remittances contracyclical or procyclical? Um, and, and we think it's an important question to have because because it can really affect the way you think about these these programs that were based uh, these development programs that were based on remittances. So. At the micro level, there's a lot of li literature on the motives to remit. This literature on remittances, if you look at uh, the amount of papers that have come out, it's, it's been increasing exponentially since early 2000s, so since mid 2000s really. Uh, and there's a lot of papers on the motives of remittances. So whether they're sent for altruistic reasons, whether they're sent for paying back for investment, and all of them can have different implications in terms of the relationship with the business cycle. But the truth is, we don't know what happens at the aggregate level, right? Uh, it may be that some of those motives play a major role, while others play a much smaller role. But but we need to look at the aggregate to see to see what's the evidence. And the two traditional um, ideas is that they can even either be procyclical. Uh, in which case, if things are going well in the home country, there's more remittances coming in, or if things are going bad, there's less remittances coming in. Uh, this will have the, um, large policy implications in the sense that a recession in the home country can basically have an amplification effect through remittances. So if things are not going well, and then there's less remittances coming in, it can have large impacts. Or they can be strongly countercyclical, which basically would mean if things are not going that well in the home country, then more remittances will come in. Um, and this has led to, to what is called the smoothing hypothesis, uh, basically that remittances would come in in the times of need and would be helpful uh, for the home country economy to deal with economic downturns. Uh, the, implication, uh, the policy implications of the smoothing hypothesis have, be, have been discussed in the literature. For example, uh, Frankel has an, uh, a nice paper in which he discusses how his findings are that remittances tend to be counter-cyclical, and, and he argues for the fact that countries should not be uh, basically uh, intervening in the market of remittances, um, that they should be just let come to the home country without any restrictions. However, a lot of international organizations have tied remittances to development programs. It has had implications for uh, exchange rate regimes. Uh, one paper by Singer, for example, uh, argued that countries wanting to adopt the sending country's currency would have a benefit if remittances were counter-cyclical, because then this could outweigh the costs of the loss of monetary policy. Basically, uh, this would serve sort of a, a one of the automatic stabilizers. 
But the very, big, uh, and I, as I've been stressing, of many international organizations is that remittances are, tend to be counter-cyclical flows. Uh, basically, that they come in the time of needs, and they, they don't come as much when the times are good in the home country. Uh, this is just a quote from the World Bank, and you can find similar quotes elsewhere for, from the International Development Bank, uh, from the multi Multilateral Investment Fund, uh, arguing that, or not, not arguing, but so suggesting that remittances tend to be counter-cyclical, and that they can, they, they're seeing sort of a development hope for the receiving countries. When you look at the previous literature, you find that the evidence is mixed. Some, some papers find that remittances are counter-cyclical, some others that they find that they're pro-cyclical for different corridors. Uh, some of them have been known for Mexico, some of them have been known for uh, Turkey and for the Philippines. Uh, but the, the evidence has been mixed. And in this paper, which is a different paper from the first one, uh, if you remember, uh, we argue that the cyclical nature of remittances needs to be evaluated in a dynamic framework. Basically, basically, part of our contribution is, the, is having a different methodology in which, in which we try to look at different periods of time and with different uh, methodologies to look at this link between the business cycle and remittances. Um, and so we explored the cyclical nature of remittances using data from Mexico. And again, while I'm not going to go through the statistical results in here, um, uh, I, I think this is a, a, an important graph to show because it shows you that the gray areas are basically downturns in the Mexican economy. And it shows you how there's two instances in which um, there's downturns in the Mexican economy and remittances respond by, by higher flows into the country. Uh, by, but this was not the case in the latest financial crisis, right? There was a downturn in the Mexican economy, but there also was a downturn, uh, there was a decrease in remittances. So some of the conclusions that we had uh, and, and from our estimations, we looked at different periods of times and we look at, at, at different estimations, is that this relationship is not necessarily stable over time. Um, so in a way, the changing cyclical nature of remittances can question the potential of remittances to smooth out cyclical fluctuations. That has, that has important policy implications in the sense that it, it, development programs should not rely blindly only on the incoming remittances. Um, so we also argue that instead of simply analyzing the cyclical nature of remittances, future research uh, should explore the reasons for the changes in the cyclical nature. Uh, and this is sort of something that's, that's in my, in my, um, in our plans uh, for future research. Um, and again, if you, for all the tables, you can find information uh, in the two papers that I can send you at any time. Thank you. Thank you, Isabel. <laughs> Thanks very much. Now we're going to hear from uh, Faisal Ahmed from Nuffield College. Great. Well, 
Hi, my name is Faisal Ahmed. I'm a postdoc at North York College. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to come and present my work here. Um, so I actually don't study Latin America that much. Uh, so, so this is a, a brand new research area for me, so I'll look forward to your comments in the question and answer section. So my broad area of interest here is trying to understand how do remittances at the individual level affect political behavior. And so the title of my paper here is Remittances, Clientelism, and Electoral Preferences, Theory and Evidence from the Dominican Republic. So remittances broadly defined are just cross-border flows of money between household members. Um, and according to the World Bank, uh, globally, formal remittances uh, exceeded about $700 billion in 2010. And if you take into account informal transfers too, with the aggregate number uh, jumps to about um, over $1 trillion. Now for the typical developing country, um, remittances constitute about 6 to 7% of GDP. And we see that across Latin America, where there's a lot of uh, variation in, in the percentage of households that receive remittances. So countries like Brazil and Argentina, for instance, have remittances, uh, about 5% of households have remittances, while countries like the Dominican Republic or Guatemala or Honduras have a much higher share, about 35%. So nearly one in three households receives remittance income. So in this paper, I'm interested in understanding how do these, how, when these, uh, when this money comes into these countries and to these households, how does that affect political behavior? So political scientists have kind of studied some of this already. Um, and you can kind of think about a, a variety of mechanisms through which you might think that remittances affect political behavior. So there's one strand of work looking at how when individuals receive money from abroad, they're more likely to withdraw from the state. And as a result, what they may be less likely to vote in elections or demand stuff from with the government. So there's a, a lot of research looking in Mexico looking at how remittances reduce political participation. On the other hand, um, we know that in a lot of developing countries, and especially in Latin America, clientelism is a pervasive feature of electoral politics, right? So political parties buy votes. And so individuals that become a little bit richer from remittances makes it that much harder for a political party to buy their vote. So as a result, this kind of weakens the clientelistic relationship between political actors and remittance recipients. So there's some work looking at how remittances um, weaken the behavior, uh, the, weaken the ability of political parties to buy votes. On the other hand, though, well, there's some work looking at how when individuals receive remittances from abroad, they're more likely to view, have a positive assessment of the national economy, and then they attribute that to the incumbent. As a result, then, what that strand of work predicts that remittances will induce individuals to vote for the incumbent. Finally, there's been some work looking at how, um, as elections near, um, individuals from abroad often send remittances back into their home country, partly to fund opposition parties. So what they've looked at is the electoral cycle and so there's been some work looking at Mexico and India kind of documenting it. Now, you know, each of these mechanisms kind of predict different outcomes in terms of incumbent behavior. And so if you think about just the clientelism mechanism, well, that mechanism predicts that as uh, that, that, that remittances weaken the clientelistic relationship, therefore remittance recipients are less likely to vote for an incumbent. While the economic assessments mechanism predicts that remittance recipients are more likely to vote for the incumbent. So it, it's unclear what the net outcome of that is. Another limitation is that much of the empirical work today, at least in political science, has been confined to looking at household behavior in Mexico. So in this paper, I'm trying to broaden that perspective. So what I do in this paper, um, I'm not going to have time to kind of go through the formal model, but the key insight of the model is that 
um, a recipient, uh, an individual that receives remittances is more likely to vote for an incumbent that they dislike relative to a non-recipient, uh, right? Uh, and then I'm going to use some survey evidence from the Dominican Republic to back that up. So let me just kind of just go through the two broad mechanisms underlying the model. The first is economic assessments mechanism. And here the argument is that um, individuals receive money from abroad, and then they feel better about their own household income and their own national income, and then they attribute that to the performance of the incumbent. As a result, they're more likely to vote for the incumbent. The second me mechanism is a clientelism mechanism, where it's basically that uh, as individuals become a little bit richer from remittances, it makes it that much more expensive for political parties to buy their vote. As a result, that kind of weakens the clientelistic relationship between an incumbent and his um, uh, client. So but the expectation here is that recipients are less likely to vote for the incumbent. And then the final feature of the theory is that in many developing countries, especially moving in Latin America, the incumbents often enjoy uh, a, an advantage in engaging in this clientelistic behavior because they can um, access the public budget uh, and use those funds to engage in vote funding. So there's two theoretical predictions that kind of come out of the model. Um, the first is that remittances lower the cost of vote buying. So the, the main effect then of remittances on voting for the incumbent is negative. But for individuals that tend to dislike the incumbent more, um, uh, individuals that receive remittances are more likely to vote for the incumbent. So empirically, but there are two kind of effects that we might observe. The first is, is that the main effect of remittances for the it reduces the probability of voting for the incumbent. And the second effect is that there's an interactive effect. Basically that for individuals that dislike the uh, incumbent more, uh, uh, individuals that receive remittances are more likely to vote for that incumbent. It's somewhat of a counterintuitive uh, argument, but I'm happy to talk about it in the Q&A section. So now let's talk about how I go about kind of uh, testing it. So empirically, it's hard to kind of gauge uh, vote buying behavior because as analysts, we don't actually observe any of it. So we don't see the political party uh, giving the transfer typically, and then we aren't really sure that the individual that takes the transfer actually votes for that political agent. So what do political scientists typically do is they use survey data around the time of election, and then they ask questions about, you know, what transfer is given uh, and who do you vote for to kind of infer some sort of logic from it. So I'm going to use a survey that was taken um, following the 2008 presidential election in, in the Dominican Republic. So why is this a nice uh, case study? Well, first, you know, remittances constitute a large share of the national economy. Um, since 2000, um, remittances have averaged about 9% of, uh, of GDP, which amounts to about $260 per capita. And as I showed you in the first slide, more than 40% of households receive remittance income. There's also a lot of work looking at the long history of clientelistic behavior in the Dominican Republic, starting from the 1960s and even, you know, um, continuing on through the mid-90s when there was a move towards uh, better democracy. And within the 2008 election, um, all the political parties basically engaged in some sort of clientelistic behavior. Um, you know, one party, for instance, distributed chickens and pigs and then they drop uh, money out of a helicopter. So there's a variety of ways in which individuals buy votes. And it's worth noticing that things like ch that the transfer themselves can be quite small, right? So a party may just have to give a chicken or a pig or a t-shirt just to buy the vote. So even if, a, um, even if households get like $5 additional in remittance income, that might sway them to vote the other way. <coughs> 
finally, um, another attractive feature about the survey is that the uh, response rate in the survey for individuals that would vote for the incumbent, um, which is 44.9, is almost identical to the actual um, uh, uh, vote share of the incumbent in the election, which is 44.8. So it seems that that survey may actually be a good indicator of actual voting preferences. So, 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 so what's the uh, data that I use? So I'm interested in understanding how does remittances influence whether or not an individual will vote for the incumbent. So well, there's a question in the survey that asks, if elections were held this Sunday, who would you vote for? Mm -hmm. uh, and I quote individuals that vote for the Dominican uh, Liberation Party, the incumbent in the election as one, and if they vote for any other party, that's zero. There's also a question in the survey that asks, how, uh, in the past year, how, how many times have you received remittances? Individuals that have indicated that they've received remittances at least once are quoted as uh, getting one, and for individuals that don't get any remittances, they're zero. And then there's a question that asks, um, what is your level of confidence in the government? And so I take that as a measure of the underlying dissatisfaction with the incumbent. Um, and I create a four-point scale where individuals that have no confidence in the government get a score of four, and individuals that have a, a, a high level of confidence get a, a score of one. So then how do I go about uh, gauging this effect? So I, I, I run a simple uh, OLS regression where I look at uh, where my dependent variable is vote, which is uh, a binary variable equal to one if the individual votes for the incumbent and zero otherwise. Um, R is remittances for individual I in, in district J. D is that measure of dissatisfaction. And then I use the interaction of dissatisfaction with remittances. X is a vector of standard controls. Uh, and ADA is a, um, a vector of district fixed effects. Um, and this basically uh, will, will pick up any kind of observe, unobserved effect that we might see at, at the district level that might explain um, voting behavior. So we can imagine that political parties uh, will, will pursue different electoral st strategies in different districts precisely because their vote shares might be different in those districts. So to control for that unobserved effect, we put this district fixed effect. So from the theory, the um, uh, main uh, prediction is that remittances lower the cost of vote buying, so the coefficient on beta should be negative. Uh, individuals that you know, have a dissatisfaction with the incumbent are less likely to vote for the incumbent, so the coefficient on lambda should be negative. And then the uh, main prediction from the model is that individuals that, uh, is that remittance recipients that dislike the incumbent are more likely to vote for the incumbent, so the coefficient then on theta should be positive. So here are just the main results from the paper. So I, I just want to just take a look at column one, for instance. Here the coefficient on the remittance recipients is negative and significant, which is consistent with the uh, vote buying uh, logic. And then the coefficient on the interaction term is positive and significant. And then if, if we introduce the uh, controls, the same results holding in columns two and three. In columns four through six, I just look at what, uh, I look at whether or not the individual will, will vote for the opposition party, and unsurprisingly, we find the negative effect. So, in, uh, so they're more likely to vote for the main opposition, um, and the, the interaction term is negative. So this is exactly a, a, what we would expect. So, so far I've kind of shown you that you know, remittances might affect voting behavior, uh, uh, and the vote choice, does this operate through the two mechanisms that I kind of build my theory on? So the first mechanism is a mechanism with economic assessments, that individuals that receive remittances are more likely to give a favorable appraisal of the national economy. Um, so I create a, a four-point index that measures that. So in columns one through three, I just look at the effect of remittances on, on, 
on a certain sort of national economy. And so the estimate in column one, for instance, implies that a, uh, an individual that receives remittances has a point two index point uh, higher evaluation of the national economy. Okay, so that's kind of confirming the um, economic assessments channel. The second mechanism is uh, what the clientelism mechanism. So this is slightly hard to evaluate, but one of the key insights of, of a literature on clientelism is that uh, as an electoral strategy, it's more effective when the voter is poor. So we should see higher, uh, so our estimates uh, from the previous slide should be higher for individuals that are poor versus individuals that are rich. So I classify indi uh, individuals by, uh, uh, by uh, if they're poor or not, based on a question that asks, do you have sufficient income? So individuals that say that they have insufficient income are classified as poor, while those individuals that claim that they have sufficient income are classified as being rich. It's a crude measure, but it's a good way of kind of differentiating. So in columns four, for, an, um, for a sample of just poor voters, we see that the effects are a lot larger, while in a, um, in a specification just for, for richer voters, we see no effect. So that's kind of consistent with this clientelism mechanism. Um, and then in column six, um, I look at whether or not um, we can treat individuals that receive remittances as swing voters. So one of the key insights of the vote buying model is that political parties are already going to target voters that are kind of in the middle, that are not loyal to the, uh, to the incumbent and not loyal to the opposition. So individuals in the middle. So in column six, I just, um, I just look at the, uh, whether or not just, if we, re if we re regress remittance recipients on vote choice, and basically the effect is, is negative but not significant. So on the, it basically suggests that we can treat them as kind of being in between. So are these results quite, um, are they robust? Um, so one concern that we might have is, is selection bias. So we know that political parties may target um, uh, certain types of voters unobservable characteristics, right? So if you're a political party, well, you're more likely to offer a transfer to somebody that's poor. Um, so one way that we can kind of deal with this is to match individuals on these characteristics and then estimate the results. So if you do it that way, it works. Um, the results also work if you estimate using other types of models. So another concern that we m might have is um, of, uh, some unobserved uh, variation. So one might be cohort effects. So an individual's previous experience with political events in the country may shape uh, uh, his or her attitudes towards the incumbent. So, so when we control for those, that um, that doesn't seem to be an, uh, a problem. And then finally, um, the, the results that I observe in the Dominican Republic seem to also hold for voters across Latin America. So I, I pull the data together and um, I run the model that way and, and the results still hold. Um, so just in conclusion, um, what this paper tries to show is that there's you know, we can imagine a variety of mechanisms through which you might think that remittances affect political behavior. In this paper, I look at two divergent mechanisms and kind of put them together, um, and it offers some welfare implications. So on the one hand, you know, we can argue that remittances weaken clientelism, which may have positive uh, socioeconomic outcomes. On the other hand, though, through the economic assessments mechanism, it may allow uh, ineffective governments to basically stay in power a little bit longer. So, you know, future research should try to kind of parse out what the welfare gains from that may be. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor. So here from David Doyle at St. Hughes College.
<coughs> so, afternoon. So this paper and this project is born out of my course standard research interest, and that's really to understand in a Latin American context why certain political parties don't seem to behave in the manner that we might expect them to behave, and why the Latin American electorate, why they don't seem to be demanding certain types of policies that we might expect them to, to be demanding. And, and, and this project initially was primarily one that I was working on on my own, and I began to focus on the effects that and economic pressures and, and international economic flows had on shaping both political preferences and political behavior and subsequent then <coughs> political behavior at, at, at the macro level and how this translates into some type of, of macro level policy output. And currently this, this, this focus of my research can be found in, in work with the likes of Chris and, and other colleagues of ours and you know these are not. So the, this paper is actually very much related to, 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 to the work of Isabel and Faisal and the, the, the things that they were talking about. The motivation for this paper really comes from the size and extent of remittances as a capital flow that are coming into the Latin American region. So as I said, I was particularly interested in trying to understand why political parties don't are, seem to produce policies that don't seem to coincide with what we might expect of them, and why the electorate don't seem to object to this in any meaningful way in subsequent electoral cycles. So uh, initially I was, I was focusing on things like inflation, I was focusing on things like pressures in the, in the international economy, like pressures of, of attracting foreign direct investment, etc. But one thing which I'd overlooked was this role of remittances, because remittances are a significant financial inflow into developing world economies, and increasingly so. Between 1995 and 2011, remittance to the developing world grew from 55 billion to over 372 billion. Now, Latin America accounts for 17% of those remittances, and in 2011 received 62 billion US dollars in remittances. And in the same year, remittances grew by 5.2%. So these are sizable amounts of capital flows, and they are increasing over time, or at least they are increasing in, in, in the contemporary period. This is just to give you some extent of both the size and, uh, and, and significance of remittance as a source of cap capital for Latin American countries and for Latin American households, and also to give you some ex sense of the variation within remittances that we can observe within, across, the, across the region. So for some countries such as El Salvador, Nicaragua, Honduras, Dominican Republic, Guatemala, etc., remittances are a really significant source of foreign exchange. Not only that, they also reach large proportions of the domestic population, in some cases nearly over 20-25% of the households within these countries. So this began to get me thinking, I began to get me thinking is, is, is how do these capital flows, or how might these capital flows change political behaviour, very much influenced by the same question that Faisal has. How, can the, how do these capital flows, how might they influence how people vote, and how might this then translate into some type of, of, of policy output at the macro level? And the puzzle for me, initially what I started with, was what we see is, is really extraordinary variation in the level of social security and social welfare expenditure across the region. And part of this can just simply be explained by historical dynamics, and there's some really good works which traces the historical development of social welfare <coughs> and social welfare systems in Latin America, but what we, what we can observe is not just variations across countries, but we can also observe significant variations within countries across time. And in fact, in recent years, what we can observe is that countries such as Brazil have seen quite significant increases in social spending and social welfare and security, undoubtedly related to the global economic boom and also the election of, of the Peite, and, and Tim could perhaps speak to that far, far more than I could. But also in other countries, such as Bolivia and Ecuador, we have seen decreasing levels 
of social security and welfare transfers at the same time that the electorate have elected left-wing leaders who espouse stridently nationalistic redistributive or at least stridently nationalistic and, and rhetoric that's very critical of neoliberal policy paradigm or, or, or market reform within the region. So this is a little bit puzzling for me. So my argument stems and builds on the existing work out there that, that's already on remittances. And I'm not going to go through it in any great detail because Isabel and, and, and Faisal have talked about this. It stems from the assumption that remittances are really about reducing poverty and income level at the micro level and also improving access to public goods such as education, such as healthcare, etc. for the individual who receives these goods. There's quite a small literature, however, and again Faisal's talked about this, that examines the effect of remittances on public policy. There was, we have David Singer's paper at MIT in the fixed exchange rate. There's a, a paper in ISQ which attempts to show that remittances will reduce government corruption because they hold the, 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 the government's more accountable, etc. And then there's Faisal's paper, of course, in the American Political Science Review, which suggests that remittances enable um, autocratic governments to prolong their tenure in office because it's a source of, 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 of unearned income. There's also three papers which are related to spending in some way, shape, or form. For example, Faisal argues in, in his paper, and any questions related to that can be directed to him, that um, in autocratic governments use remittances, or at least use remittances in order to channel money away from state transfers or state redistributive transfers in order to shore up their own winning coalition. David Singer argument argues that remittances increase the overall size of government spending. Now, he specifically states, this is a working paper that he has, he's agnostic about what the effect of remittance has on the composition of spending, but the overall size of the economy should grow as a consequence of remittances because it, it increases the, the, the domestic consumption potential of individuals. This, in turn, increases the tax take of, 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 of the state, and this, in turn, may, will mean that the state will find it easier to access credit on, on, on international markets, etc. And then there's one paper which specifically focuses on Yemen, a qualitative case study back in 1997, which suggests that remittances might be substituting for government sponsored transfer. So remittances are, are, active, are act, acting to privatize traditional forms of, of, of government transfer. So this paper is, is, is directly related to this work. And it starts from the argument and assumption, the assumption that remittances enable the individuals who receive them to purchase basic necessities and durable consumer goods. So remittances enable those who receive them to purchase basic necessities that they need to survive. Remittances also have an important insurance and, and compensation function in general, but as Isabel actually demonstrated in her paper, this obviously is contextual and depends on, 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 on particular e economic variables, but the relationship between international economies, but nonetheless, in general, they usually per perform an important insurance and compensation function. function. And overall, certainly in the Mexican case, where most of this work has been done, remittances tend to reduce income volatility and household risk. So on the basis of these assumptions, I make the following argument. That as a consequence of a reduction in income risk, this ultimately will translate into reduced preferences for redistribution or less support for government redistribution. There's quite a large literature on social spending and social transfers already out there, and I just don't simply have time in 15 minutes to go through it. But this literature is rooted in how particular micro-level preferences related to risk in your position in the labor force shape your preferences for redistribution. 
One aspect of my causal, causal argument or causal mechanism here is that remittances reduce that level of personal income risk because of their insurance and compensation function, because they allow you to purchase basic necessities. They form a function that's very similar to Social Security and welfare expenditure in many countries, and therefore, over time, as you receive them, this should reduce your, your, your level of household income risk, and this will reduce your support or preference for redistribution. The other and complementary causal mechanism is that remittances just simply increase your wealth. And so wealthier people, in many cases, tend to favor less redistribution because this could have a detrimental impact on their wealth because this redistribution is going to be funded through some type of proportional taxation. Also as well, because if you begin to receive remittances, it's natural that you're going to have some sort of prospect of, of upward social mobility. And, and again, there's, there's quite a large literature which has shown that it's not only your current level of wealth that matters, but also what you perceive your level of wealth to be in the future, which is going to affect your preference for particular type of policies or particular type of political outcomes. So, if we look at some survey data, we can, we, we, we can get some sense that this is actually what is happening in, in Latin America. As Faisal did say, it's very hard to find good individual level survey data which asks questions about redistribution, government transfers, etc., and also about remittances. But since 2008, both Lapop and Latino Barometro, the two major sources of cross-national public opinion survey for Latin America, have begun to ask these questions. What this graph just simply tells us is that those who receive remittances, and this is a cross-sectional um, model, so this is this is data, this cross-sectional model across 80 Latin American countries, which, which suggests that those who receive remittances are much more likely to think that the income distribution in their country is fair in comparison to those who do not receive any remittances. So that is that those who receive remittances are much more likely to think that the income distribution within their country is fair. So this obviously is just a very, very rough proxy for preferences for redistribution. But of course, the issue that I always come up with, and I've, I've talked to Diego about this, and, and Tim about this, and many other people about this, is the issue of, of state capacity. So what about state capacity? Surely this just simply is, is an artifact of state capacity. So those countries that have greater state capacity were the countries who established the larger social welfare programs, so traditionally Chile, Uruguay, Brazil, etc., the original large social welfare structures and, and programs within the Latin American region. Therefore, those citizens who have had access to these programs are going to experience feedback mechanisms or feedback loops where they're, where they're going to where they're going to have more support for these type of redistributive programs within these countries and so this artifact here is just simply a difference between those countries that have social welfare systems and those countries with don't. Well the interesting thing is actually that, that that doesn't really seem to be the case and in countries that have these histories of, 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 of large social welfare states what we can see for example in Chile that those who receive remittances, that, that there still is a discernible difference between those who receive remittances in these countries and those who don't. And those who receive remittances are far more likely to, st to state that the income distribution within the, in their countries is fair in comparison that, to those who don't receive remittances. And just to give you an example, this is the Chilean case, and what we can see is that there is actually a discernible difference even within Chile, a country with one of the longest and, and largest, although it has been reduced in, in, in some extent over the years, um, social welfare structures, that there is a discernible difference in Latin American members of the electorate who receive remittances and Latin American members of the electorate who don't. So, what does all this mean? So all this means, or at least what I suggest it means, is that we are likely to see less support for political parties and candidates that favour, or more support that favour less redistribution and lower taxes. And over time, this will translate into reduction in provision of social spending at the macro level. And this argument and, and, and this investigation is also partly motivated by another thing that I find very curious in, in, in contemporary Latin America, and that is 
the increasing saliency of issues that are valence issues in countries with very high levels of inequality with huge levels of poverty what we have are valence issues dominating electoral campaigns so issues such as crime and security etc and so we don't seem to see this competition on traditional or the, the traditional left-right divide and of course for some of the some of the explanation for this lies in great recent papers by Kenneth Roberts etc which explains the partisan the alignment or alignment of electoral systems but for me I think part of the explanation might 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 lie in what is happening here this is not really that important, but all it tells us is that this enables me to examine the long-term effect of remittances on social welfare spending um, at the macro level, and that is what I'm, that, that, that is ultimately what I'm interested in. And this is this is what we get. What this shows is that as social welfare, or as sorry, as remittances increase to a Latin American economy within the last 20 years, so that was between 1990 and 2011, as remittances increase, what happens is that the level of social security and welfare spending actually decreases. This is something that's called a long run, long run multiplier um, and, and all, really all this, what this means is that over time what we see is that the higher the level of remittances the lower the level of social spending. So this enables us to, to gauge the effect of remittances at the macro level on these policy outputs at the, the, the macro level. But if my argument is correct Surely, then, we should be able to observe remittances operating through some sort of electoral channel because, of course, the alternative is, 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 is the type of argument that Faisal puts forward. And that's that democratic governments are going to use this unearned source of foreign exchange or can use this source of, of foreign income that's coming into their economies as a means to pull back from the state provision of certain services and then can use it in order to increase clientelistic or, 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 or patronage-based linkages with members of the electorate. My argument would be is that because remittances first of all increase your general income level, that this is going to make clientelistic appeals less salient um, among certain members of the Latin American electorate. And, and, and secondly, when, Latin American, when the Latin American electorate receive this form of foreign exchange, this is going to change their behavior at the micro level as opposed to say some sort of macro level um, government-led behavior. So this just looks at the effect of remittances on presidential and legislative elections across Latin America between 1996 and 2011, and this is just based on a measure of, of the level of support for left-leaning parties in Latin American presidential and legislative elections that's taken from Andy Baker and Ken Green. They published a, a big paper in World Politics a couple of years ago. And what this shows us is that in presidential elections, those who receive remittances are much less likely to support presidents of the left than those who do not receive remittances. What this tells us is that those who receive remittances are much less likely to, to vote or support for parties of the left in comparison to those that do not receive remittances. So, what we are observing here is some, is, is some form of electoral channel where those who are receiving remittances are also moving away from parties who advocate or support some type of redistributive platform. And we can see this at presidential and legislative elections at the macro level, but we can also see some evidence for this at the micro level if we look at individual level survey data. So again, there's a difference between those who receive remittances and those who don't receive remittances in the support or the, who they state that they would vote for in the next presidential election. So those who receive remittances are much more likely to state that they, were, that they would vote for a party or a candidate of the right in comparison to those those that don't receive any remittances whatsoever. So, what does all this mean? 
Well, for me, I think it has a number of important implica implications for the region. And the most important implication for the region, I actually forgot to leave off this slide, so I'll just come to it at the end. <laughs> the first is that I think it has issues for dependence and for relations of dependence that might exist between Latin American economies and what happens elsewhere. I think it also has, has, has issues for the efficiency of domestic investment. Because if those who are receiving these remittances invest this money in a, a less efficient manner than the state might, then over time this is going to have implications for the efficiency of domestic investment with, with, within these national economies. In some respects, it's, it, it talks or relates to other recent literature which is focused on the effect of, of globalization or the pressures of globalization on shaping particular type of policy outcomes in Latin America. And, and I think remittances are clearly part and parcel of globalization. Obviously, it's, it's no surprise that the extent of remittances has grown as global, inter global integration has grown. So they are undoubtedly part and parcel of this process of globalization, which we're still trying to figure out exactly how this shapes, shapes particular types of policy outputs and political behavior. That's one of the things I, I want to try and, and continue to do, is further isolate the effect of, of, of this issue of, of state capacity. And in the paper itself, I do all sorts of things with what's called an instrumental variable analysis, etc., to try and isolate this effect a little bit more. Um, but this is one of the things that I'd still like to work on. And then the really important issue, which, which I forgot about, um, or which I, at least I, I left off the slide, is that I think one of the most important things that this, that, that this process is, is, is might do or, or could do is that it might change the boundaries of political competition within the region. So those countries that receive large amounts of remittances, this may undermine or increasingly undermine the demand that the electorate have for traditional redistributive programs or traditional types of partisan alignments that we understand, understand party systems in countries with high levels of inequality, etc., to have. And what we may increasingly see, or what this help may explain, is why we are increasingly see the importance of valence issues or electoral competitions fought on things like crime and security, etc., with less and less mention of redistribution or increase in taxation, etc., or increased social spending or, or, or welfare expenditure. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. Um, first, um, good afternoon everyone, it's great to be here, it's great to meet, at least to look at um, your students. Um, let me start by thanking um, Tim for the opportunity to read three great papers and to withdraw the thank you for uh, making me comment three papers on a topic I know very little about. So um, the thank you and the withdraw thank you at the same time. This, I hope it has been clear, it's an extremely important um, topic for Latin America. Let's remember there's at least 30 uh, million Latin Americans that live uh, outside their countries. That's around 5% of all Latin Americans. And it was partly said, remittances have actually increased from 13 million to 64 billion between 1995 and 2008. Even more importantly, um, and you, some of you might know, because you work on Central America, in some Central American countries, around a quarter of remittances uh, amount for around a quarter of GDP. So a substantial amount that obviously influence some of the outcomes that have been discussed. More importantly, the, uh, some of the literature, especially from international organizations about remittances and migration, has been extremely positive. So let me um, quote um, a report from the World Bank in 2008, which says, international migration not only reduced poverty in the poorer nations that most journeys begin, where most journeys begin, sorry, but can generate a range of generally positive social and health effects, 
close the gender gap, reduce child labor, improve child health, lower high fertility rates, promote entrepreneurship, etc., etc., etc. And they, they quote. Um, and the contributions today also show that part of the literature um, actually discuss and has a very um, similar positive um, view about remittances. So, of course, the question of what is the impact of remittances on political, social, and economic development becomes extremely important and um, relevant. So I want to um, discuss in the next 12 minutes um, the, uh, actually what is that the papers tell us about that. So to summarize the three papers um, in case you were not paying attention, but just a key argument. <laughs> Second, to discuss a little how robust or credible these outcomes are um, and what are the implications. So you remember the first thing that we got is actually that at least when we look at Mexico, there's enough evidence to think that um, remittances are actually probably neither always countercyclical nor procyclical, although in terms of the literature, the most significant part is that they might tend to actually be procyclical. So remember that it means that they may end up um, go in maximizing or increasing the uh, moves that GDP has in these countries. We hear from Faisal a story that is uh, positive and negative. The positive is that uh, voters that get remittances tend to um, pay less attention to clientelism. Why? Because they already have more money, so they care less about getting more money from um, the government. Uh, but at the same time, because they have more money, they are more positive about um, the economy, and therefore they tend to be more positive about uh, incumbents at the same time, and therefore make them pay less uh, when they do poor policies. And then from David, that actually, if you are a country that receives um, remittances in a certain period, social spending will then tend to increase less than in countries that have um, their remittances over time. So obviously we are in a world that is very far from the World Bank. If you pay attention, at least three of the four things I said are much more negative. It's pro-cyclical, it actually might um, end up uh, making voters not uh, forcing the government to pay, and I think even more relevant and less and much more sad, uh, it might um, end up leading to less social spending. How credible um, are these outcomes? How credible is the story that um, you hear, how much you have um, to believe it? Well, I think, um, as you saw, the papers are methodologically sophisticated. They go over robustness checks, etc. So it's actually very difficult to see uh, problems on them. But let me raise a few questions about the story, at least as it was presented. The first is that uh, Isabel's story is one about unstable um, correlation rates. And this, obviously, in mathematical terms might be true. But in actual terms, and as she uh, actually discussed, it just must be that other factors are affecting the relationship and that those factors were different in Mexico in the early 2000s and at the uh, end of the 2000s. And in fact, we have a very clear story that um, I think is the next step for them, which is to link both papers. And one would imagine that when the housing market in the US is poor, then this will affect the relation with Mexico, and then this will tend to be procyclical because everything is going in one direction. When actually um, the US has a very good housing market, if 
Mexico ends up having a crisis, then it can compensate with remittances. So it's a lot about the story of the relationship with the US, and I think that's the next thing to happen. Politically, that's actually very relevant and not particularly positive. Um, and let me here speculate, because it says, look, if you have uh, a crisis that is domestically induced and doesn't have anything to do with the US, and you are the government, you at least have a compensating factor, which is remittances. So you actually can do all the bold policies, I'm here exaggerating, you want, because you always have remittances to compensate. However, if the US decides to do things poorly, then, and you are Mexico, then you are in real trouble, because everything goes in the wrong direction, as not just Mexico, but others are finding out. So that's the first thing, that I think um, really is less interesting to say that it's unstable and much more to say that, look, there are key factors that are influencing that relationship and those key factors have a lot of uh, influence or can allow us to start uh, building political economy stories of the, of the type um, David and Faisal would uh, um, do. The second question mark, or the second thing to, uh, well, sorry, that would also mean that Mexico is not a particularly good case to explore some of these issues. Because you would want a country, well, it is for some, but for the ones I'm trying to say, because you would want a country that actually has um, remittances from a country that doesn't depend, that is not connected in terms of other parts of the business cycle. I didn't understand myself in what I just said, so I should repeat. Uh, that means that you want to have a country which you don't export to, but you receive remittances to. That is, if you are Ecuador and export to one country but get remittances from another, that's actually much better to try to see the type of uh, relations that we are um, analyzing. Let me go to the second issue, which is um, the Dominican Republican um, remittances. Actually, I think um, it, it tends to um, seem relatively um, well justified that those that receive less remittances will be less clientelistic. However, I, I wonder whether that's actually the key channel, at least when I think about the Dominican Republic. And let me throw here one that probably doesn't, it's, it's not very credible, but that I have always found interesting, which has to do less with the rational actor that gets money and that part of the reason I also like it. I get very nervous about political economies always having rational actors that only care about money, and being much more about political lessons. You would imagine um, that even if the US is not the greatest democracy to learn from, and I uh, take that and the last couple of months have clearly shown, uh, still, most of migrants from the Dominican Republic are in the US seeing very different ways of doing politics and much less uh, much more if you want um, proper ways of doing politics. So one could speculate that actually there's a learning process going on, that when Dominican jerks go to the Dominican Republic and talk about how democracy should operate, they tell people, look, it's not about chickens. It's actually about voting for someone that is going to deliver something. And this is less about calculations about chickens versus non-chickens, and more about whether different actors are learning. By the way, this actually fits more with a specific indicator that FACA uh, uses, which doesn't measure the amount of remittances you are getting, but just whether you are having contacts with other people or not. The second effect, um, as um, you saw, is uh, very much about um, people having a better, more optimistic view about the economy. And here I must confess I got a little lost, and, and that might uh, be my fault I, I thought about it, because if I understood correctly, the point is 
that, um, and I quote, that um, if you receive remittances, you intend to hold a more positive view of current economic conditions and attribute this favorably to the incumbent's performance. Okay, that's fine. But then if you do that, you would always tend to have a more favorable view of the government itself. So in a way, I felt that the indicator you use is endogenous to the story you are having. It's very difficult for me to see a situation in which, okay, you are more optimistic about the government, about the economy, you say this is partly because of the government, but you don't have a more favorable position on the government. In my story about political learning, it could actually be that these are people that are, have less favorable views about everyone. Uh, the government, um, the PRD, everyone else, because they just don't like democracy as it is, because they have um, learned from, again, their uh, friends or brothers in New York that uh, democracy works better. Again, I am skeptical about continuing saying that the US democracy works very well, but it still works much better than the Dominican Republic. So there, basically I'm saying, yes, it might be that the relations are true, but it might be that we have to pay much more attention about how people learn about democracy, and remember that migration is not just about remittances, but it's precisely about those processes of learning that uh, are extremely important. And by talking about specific indicators, I'm not trying to be picky, I promise, or be mean, I hope it's clear, but I'm actually trying also to say, look, these are causal relations that are extremely complicated, and that um, call for, some of you will not be surprised, I think, a much better interaction between quantitative work and more qualitative work that speaks to the, um, some of um, the influences. Then finally, David's story is actually the saddest of the, the, saddest of the three years. So because I think, um, and I have told um, Kim when I heard the, uh, the paper before, that one can extend this historically and basically have a story about divergence in social spending, which is countries that initially had lower social spending, she has called it the state capacity, but I would say countries that actually have a weaker welfare state will, be tend, to, will tend to be countries that exit much, many more people and therefore countries that later on receive many, much more remittances, and then that vote for less, even less redistribution. So if you have this story, you may, if you are Uruguay, you have a good welfare state, you don't have a lot of migration, so you don't have the negative effect of remittances. If you are El Salvador, it's the worst of all worlds, you had an initial poor state, you then have remittances, uh, you have then migration and remittances, and then you even have less of the positive process. And that's why I actually, as I told you, I think it's less important the criticism that we were saying about the screen capacity, because you are just saying in, in time two, mm -hmm. this is what's happening. Whatever was the reason before, it matters less. I'm less convinced, um, and again, I'm repeating things I have told um, you, I apologize, about the trade-off that David presented to us quite fast between remittances and um, and social, and social insurance. Partly because if you think about what social insurance in many of these countries is, it's actually two things, pensions and health. And I know you then separate health spending, but the fact is a lot of the expenditure in social insurance in countries like Brazil, Costa Rica, Uruguay, is actually social insurance to start with. And I'm just not convinced that people and voters would do that clear of a trade-off between receiving remittances and not wanting or not being very interested in having a good um, health system. So 
I take this story totally at the macro level, I'm less convinced that this is a trade-off of our redistribution. It could be, um, and I'm here being very simplistic but trying to link the three papers, that actually countries that receive remittances have deeper economic cycles because we have one more variable that is procyclical, have more optimistic voters, which actually think that the economy is going well and therefore don't need the social insurance because think that the economy is going well, and therefore that explanation, and again, and being extremely simplistic, is that the policies become more difficult for things Isabel and Faisal uh, had told us before. At the end, last point, this last point is, um, I think, why we are in the room. And I think it's how um, useful um, can it be a, a place and a way to think about the world which is multidisciplinary and allow us to link and build explanations from different disciplines. So for those of you that are just starting an interdisciplinary program in the uh, Latin American Center, you are in the right place. But also, it's a measure, it's a measure I think the papers were a clear message about how complicated migration and remittances is, how many different factors are. At the end, uh, this is very clear, not just in the three papers, but when you think, and here I'm borrowing on a paper, uh, on a chapter of a, a handbook that uh, a friend and I just finished crediting, if you think about the role of migrants themselves. Migrants are, for some literature and for development, heroes, people capable of reducing poverty, people capable of enhancing democracy, people that are entrepreneurs. For others, you only think to have to think about the Conservative Party here, they are actually legal people that are trying to steal um, goods. And I think that contradiction about what migration is, at the very general level, translates also into every specific process that we can analyze and the process that we analyze here. Thank you very much.